It's good to see you, kind of. I was just sitting here thinking about what I was doing last Sunday morning at this time. I was laying on a beach on Marco Island in Florida. Uh, and actually, I was doing a quiet time. I, I, I was actually reading the scripture that, uh, that we were... Yeah, I'll, Carl said, oh, I wasn't doing that. No, no, actually, that was the one day of the week that I did that. Um, and I laid there and I was reading the scripture that, uh, that Chris was preaching on last week uh, about, uh, you know, don't worry about, do not be anxious about anything, the whole thing there in the first part of Philippians chapter 4. And, uh, and then after I did that, I was, you know, I was just thinking about stuff and prayed. And then about an hour later, I woke up and, uh, <laughs> and realized that my, that my iPad was laying on my chest and I was on a chair. And so it was a great time. It was a very relaxing time. So uh, my wife and I just got back Friday from a week and a half in Florida. And uh, I, you know, I was thinking about today, I'm teaching, I'm going to be talking about contentment. And I'm going like, God, you know. I'm not content. I just spent a week and a half in Florida, and my first thought was, let's spend another week and a half there, you know, because it's not enough. It's never enough. And so, anyway, we're here today to talk about, to kind of end up the series that we've been talking about all uh, for the last two months in the book of Philippians. And so, I just want to talk about just, I'm just actually going to focus on four verses uh, at the end of chapter four in Philippians today, I, I looked at all of them and realized there's too many things to talk about. Let's just talk about these four verses. And so we, we eventually will be today in Philippians uh, chapter four, verse, uh, verses 10, 11, 12, and 13, and talking about what they have to say to us about a lot of things. Um, one of the things I thought about when I was thinking about these verses, this whole thing of contentment, is we often hear in weddings um, that the bride and the groom uh, as, they, as they talk about, they talk about for being together for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, and uh, for in sickness and in health. Any of you said that kind of stuff at your wedding? You know, anybody? Nobody said that at their wedding? You all did, probably. Okay? You all did. Because that's part of the traditional vows that most people use, you know, to be together that way. And these are lovely sentiments that we, uh, sentiments that we incorporate into our wedding vows and we promise to stay committed to one another, to our spouses, no matter what life brings our way. And, but the thing is, is when we commit those things at the start of our journey together, to stick together until the very end, the problem is, is that we really don't think, well, first of all, we think that the better part is going to be a lot better than it may be. And we never think that the worst part would ever be really that bad. That's what we all think. I can guarantee it. When people come to my office for premarital counseling and they talk about all this stuff and they're like, you know, just, you know it's going to be wonderful. And I'm going, yeah, it's going to be some wonderful stuff. But there's going to be some junk too in your lives. So I'm going like, and they go look at me like, oh, you're such a bummer. And I'm going, no, I'm a realist. And so, you know, I, you know, I thought about it my own 37 plus years ago when my wife and I, I got married, you know, I, I thought, I figured we would never be exceedingly rich, but we'd rel never really be poor either. That's what we, I thought. And, and we might not be in perfect health our whole lives, but neither of us would get kind of some kind of disease or end up in some kind of debilitating, disfiguring accident. Neither one of us would do that either because we don't think about those things. You think about life being kind of like in the middle of the road. Do you not? That's where we all think we're going to be. Maybe a little bit of ups, a little bit of downs. It's nothing really extreme. Because nobody ever thinks anything really bad is going to happen to them. 
Uh, we think that we might live our lives with some nice upsides and some minor setbacks, nothing more. And we think that when people experience the extremes of life, um, it, it's, it's, a, it's not very often. Now, we've been talking about the Apostle Paul. And when you look at the life of the Apostle Paul, the guy that wrote the letter to the Philippian church, and you look at the whole of Scripture, which is talked about the Apostle Paul in Acts, beginning with chapter 9, and all the way through, uh, through several of the letters that he writes, uh, uh, Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians. You just go through the whole list of, of letters that he wrote as well. Um, when a man like Paul, Paul goes through what I would call some wild swings in life, highs and lows, extreme highs and lows in life. And, and we think these, these things are extreme, but it's important today for us to understand that context of what Paul went through for, for what he's about to say to us in Philippians chapter 4, verses 10, 11, 12, and 13. Because he says it in the context of where he has been, which is not where most of us have been. But it also gives us encouragement because if we haven't experienced the highs and the lows that he did, and he can still say the things, things he says in Philippians 4, especially verses 11 and 12, then we can experience the same thing, the same contentment in our ups and downs in life. So we're going to look at a little bit about his ups and downs today, and we're also going to talk about what he has to say to us in Philippians 4, 10, 11, and 12, and 13. Philippians 4, 10, it says this. Now, Last week, uh, Chris talked about, I don't know exactly every verses he talked about. He talked about this whole thing of peace in God and how we find that peace in God. But um, in, in verse 10, it kind of transitions. And Paul, as he concludes his letter, this letter that, he's, that we've been talking about for several weeks now, he says this to the Philippian church. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. Now, what is he talking about? Well, it says in Scripture here that they had been the one church that during the time when Paul was going through some tough times, they had been the one church who had consistently helped him out with some monetary help and with some people who had come and, and, and minister to him as well. And for some reason during a period of time, they had not been able, whether they just couldn't do it or they didn't have an opportunity, uh, for some reason they had sent him another uh, gift to him. And he's quick to point out to them, though, in this passage that the reason he is thankful for it is not because he needs the stuff, but because it shows that they have a concern and that they are growing in their faith because the Philippian church wasn't a, a rich church. Then, then he says this in verse 11 and 12. I am not saying this, that you gave me this gift, because I am in need. And this is the part that we want to focus our attention upon today. For I have learned, for I have learned, for I have learned. Underline that, circle that. To be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Now, like I said, most of us here, and we're going to look at this in a minute, most of us here aren't going to be able to say what Paul says here, at least not with some of the heavy-duty life experience that he experienced. There may be a few people that experienced the ups and downs that he had, but not probably as many. What Paul says that he has learned through these ups and these downs of life, that Christ is enough. Christ is enough. He has learned to know that Jesus is both his satisfaction both when his belly is full and, and when his stomach is growling. 
See, the truth is, and I had to think about this hard, the truth is that the majority of all of us here in this room will not swing between these two poles at all. Most of us don't want, have to wonder where our next meal will come from. Most of us, even if we grumble about something, we usually can afford to put some gas in our car. Most of us, uh, uh, money might be tight. I've been times in life where money's tight. But I've never lived in poverty. And Paul is saying here, I've been poor, I've had nothing. And I've been hungry, not knowing where my next meal is coming from. And so that is odd compared to our typical life experience, but the most astounding thing he says in all of this is even with these extremes in life that he's experienced is this, I have learned to be content regardless or irregardless of all the things that are going on in life. So well, let's look at some of Paul's highs in law. Now some of you understand this, and this is something I uh, uh, used to take for granted that people that come to church know all about the Bible. Well, no, you don't know all about the Bible, okay? Some of you know a lot about the Bible. Some of you know more about the Bible than I do. But let's talk about what Paul's, what, what Paul's talking about here, his highs and his lows. So let's turn over, uh, highs and lows. Let's turn over to, to Acts chapter 9 for a few minutes, and let's look at something. This is a great place to start. Uh, we're just going to kind of take a quick, this is going to be really quick, uh, preview, uh, a review of what Paul's life uh, looked like uh, in Scripture. And, and the thing is this. We began this series by talking, and Paul talked about himself in, in Philippians chapter 1, about his background, about his upbringing. And just to review really quickly, Paul's upbringing was this. He was from a good family. He was a Jewish man. He was a Jew of Jews. He distinguished himself as the next up-and-comer. He was an intellectual. He was passionate. He had a reputation, in a sense, as the next big thing in the Jewish community. But then something happens to Paul, because this, this, this devout Jew who was passionate about being a Jew, all of a sudden something happens. This group of people call themselves Christians show up. And this guy named Jesus Christ shows on the scene. And then, he, then he, he, he's, he's nailed to a cross, and he's crucified, and he's ris, has risen from the dead. And then everything changes for Paul, because all of a sudden these people who are called Christians become radical. And they began to go out and tell other people, other Jews, about who, who Jesus Christ is. And Paul, as we see in chapter 9, the very first verse, it says, Meanwhile, Saul, now Saul was his name before he became Paul, was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He, he was a Jew who was, who was, like I said, an upcoming guy. He was the guy who was more passionate probably than anybody else, or maybe as passionate as anybody else, about the whole thing of Judaism. And he didn't like the fact that he, they were being threatened. So Paul, Saul, gets frustrated with what he sees as a perversion of Judaism. And what happens, he stops. One of the days it says, as we go through this, this is really quick, like I said. You just kind of read this yourself and stay up on top of it. He stops to listen to one of the Christians. His name is Stephen. And Stephen is, is talking in, in persuasive uh, words about, about Jesus Christ, about who he is and about how he was crucified and instead of listening with an open mind, what Paul is doing, Saul is doing, he's listening with his closed mind of, I want to protect my turf, and I want to begin to come to, I don't want anybody to, to go against my religion. And the Bible says he burns with anger, and he's not the only one, because in the crowd that's listening to Stephen, they become, become so uh, incited against, against Stephen, they decide to kill him. And they decide to begin to pelt him with rocks. And, and it says that, that Saul, this, this guy who was the up-and-coming Jew, Jewish leader, uh, he was there. 
And he must have been kind of a leader because they all went over to him and they handed him his, their coats. I guess they couldn't throw their rocks very well with their coats on. You know, if I wanted to throw a rock, I'd take my coat off so I could really get, you know, get, you know, get full range of motion. And that's, so he holds their coats, but he does so you know, with full understanding of what is happening. And he heartily approves of what they're doing. And so in Acts chapter 9, Paul becomes a persecutor, a key persecutor of Christians. And he heads to Damascus to eradicate the Christians. This is one of his assignments. And on the road we read in Acts chapter 9 that he has this vision of Christ. And this vision blinds him, it says. And in Acts chapter 9, verses 4 and 6, he says, He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And and the voice says, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. So he has this experience with a vision. He doesn't know exactly what's going on, but he does what the voice says. I mean, I don't know about you, if a voice blinded me and and, and all of a sudden I hear this voice that tells me to do something, I'd probably do what the voice said. That's just the way I am. I'm not really big in uh, in disobeying uh, uh, unbelievers. Disemboweled, disembodied voices. I've never heard one before, but anyway. Um, so what happens? He wanders into Damascus, and he, find, he finds his way to a man named Ananias. And Ananias, it says, and there's a, there's a great uh, feat of, of uh, interchange there in verses 10 through 18. Um, he, 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 Ananias uh, uh, talks to him, and, and Ananias has a little talk with God, too, because he t- God tells him to... to, to uh, uh, to pray for this guy and to do some stuff for him. And he says, I don't want to do that because he's the guy that kills people like me. And it's kind of a really interesting, the Bible's great. Uh, and what happens though, basically in those verses is Paul, this guy who's been a person who is persecuting Christians, now becomes a Christian. And he's baptized. And he's ready to begin a new life of faith. I mean, you talk about highs and lows. One minute he's a, a, a persecutor of Christians, the next minute he's a Christian. Almost instantaneously. And then he becomes a person who, uh, <laughs> I mean, it, it makes, if you read chapter 9, it feels, it feels like it all happens in five minutes. It's a little bit longer than that. But it's not a long time, period of time. And you go on in ch- after, uh, chapter 9, verse 20 and 22, it says, just days after his conversion to Christianity, he does something that probably none of us have ever done before he preaches his first sermon. How many of you have ever preached a sermon? I mean, you've been Christians probably more than, you know, two or three days. Isn't it time? I mean, it's not what Christians do. You know, proclaim God's word. Now, it doesn't mean you have to get up in front of a bunch of people to do it. You can preach a sermon to one person. But Paul gets in front of a bunch of people and he begins to proclaim. And guess what? It goes well. I remember my first sermon. It did not go well. I was 20 years old. We had what we had back in those days. We had youth Sundays at our church. Anybody been in church that had a youth Sunday? And the, the youth took over everything. That is one scary thing. I mean, we were the ushers. We were the, you know, the, the band. We had some musicians in the band, though, that can, can rock it. I mean, when they're, you know, kids. But back then, we didn't, Okay. <laughs> And, and, and they asked me, because I had just, like, six months before, said, I'm going to go into ministry. And they knew it. And they said, well, Bill's the one that's going to preach. 
And I remember, I, I, I'm glad they did not tape that thing. I'm glad, you know, that it was over with when it was over with. And I only had to do it one time. We only had one service. But it was horrible. It did not go well. But Paul says it went, went well. It went so well, and he convinced so many people to follow Christ that others who were like him before when he was saw and killing Christians got mad at him. And in verses 23 and 24 of chapter 9, they have this conspiracy to kill him. And so in a, a blink of an eye, Paul goes from a guy who has become a Christian, now he's preaching, he's convincing people for Christ, and all of a sudden another group of people want to kill him. Now that is, I don't know what the deal with Paul is this, but it's, it's kind of freaky because people either loved him or hated him. And he brought up that kind of thing. So Paul had this kind of, so he goes, so he leaves there, he leaves uh, he goes to Jerusalem. He's thinking in Jerusalem there's some Christians. They'll accept me. They'll kind of, you know, hug me. Something. But as he goes to Jerusalem, the Christians there don't believe he really has changed, and so they don't want to receive him. And so in one minute, he's this he's Christian. He's a follower. He's a new, a new child of Christ. He's preached a message. He's been received well. And then all of a sudden what happens is he goes and other Christians don't want to have anything to do with him. They push him away, it says. So he experiences loneliness and rejection by his own people. But the good news is, one verse later, in verse 26, or verse 27, this guy named Barnabas, Barnabas decides to befriend Paul. And Barnabas becomes one of his very best friends throughout the rest of the Bible. And so he goes from this low to this high. Verse 28 and 29 of chapter 9, he goes and he begins to, to speak to people again. He begins to debate Greeks and Hellenists and, uh, about Christ because that's what they did. They liked to debate things. But these guys didn't, did what every other group, because when he, Paul must have been incredibly persuasive in regard to his speech. Because so often what would happen is when Paul would debate people, they just didn't like that, well, hmm, you know, it's not a big deal, let's go home and eat lunch. They got mad. And so often what happens, happens here in verses 28 and 29, uh, these guys lost the argument with Paul. So what did they decide to do? They decided to kill him. Once again, Paul has this, I mean, people tried to literally kill him. Read the Bible, it says so. I didn't make this up. And so we continue along in Scripture, and chapter 9 concludes, and then throughout the rest of Acts, it talks about Peter and Paul and different things that are happening with him. In Acts chapter 11, uh, Barnabas takes Paul with him to Antioch, and for a whole year they go there, and great numbers of people come to Christ, and there's this period of peace, almost a whole year of peace in his life. But then God tells him to go somewhere else, and and in Acts chapter 13, Paul shares the gospel with a man named Sergius, but a, a, and it's crazy stuff, but a, a demon-possessed man named Bar-Jesus, Bar-Jesus, not Jesus, Bar-Jesus, B-A-R, Jesus, tries to distract Sergius, and Paul rebukes Bar-Jesus, which leaves Bar-Jesus blind and mute. It displays the power of God working through, through Paul and something new in Paul's life. It's a high. He's seen, seen God in a new and powerful way he's never seen before. And further on in Acts chapter 13, verses 13 and following, Paul and his companions traveled to a place called the city of Antioch. 
and they proclaim the message of Christ for a period of time, and many people come to Christ. Another high in his life. But the story's not over because he goes to a place named Lystra, Lystra or Lystra in Acts 14, and a lame man is healed, and the people began to worship Paul as a god. They think he's Zeus. And Paul and his companions have to say, hey, hey dudes, we're not Zeus. We're not, we're not a god. We're just people just like you. Now, I don't know if that was a high or a low. I can't figure that one out. It's kind of like, you know, you preach, people think you're, you're, you're the man, and you have to explain to them that you're really not who, who they think you are. And Paul and Barbara's trying to correct their misunderstanding. And in Acts 14, 19, and 20, uh, once again, Paul, the extremes in his life, Jews from Antioch and Iconium convinced the crowd to kill Paul. One minute he's considered a god, the next minute they want to throw stones at him. And they do. And they start throwing stones at him, and they think he's dead, and they take him outside the city walls and lay, lay him down to get him out of the city. And miraculously, soon after that, he's healed, and he, he gets up, and he lives to preach another day. And just ahead, a strong disagreement between Paul and his best friend Barnabas happens. And, and you know, these, this Barnabas has been one of the high points of his life up to this point, and this disagreement happens, and what happens is that he and his friend, Paul and his good friend Barnabas part ways. You ever lost a good friend? I would consider that low. And then eventually he reaches Philippi where he plants a church which we have been talking about for the last two months. But we didn't really finish the whole story here because it also says in Acts and other places as well that Acts 16 that peace and calm didn't last long after he got to Philippi, after he's planted this church, because a riot breaks out, and Paul gets arrested, tortured, thrown into jail. It's a great story, Acts 16, 16 and following. Read that. It seems that anywhere that Paul went, there was these extremes in his life, these highs, these lows that were so extreme in his life. It wasn't just like, well, you know, I'm having a bad day. No, I'm either getting killed, tortured, or trying to be killed, Tortured, or people are coming to Christ and grows. These extremes. So when Paul talks about, I've learned to be content in all things, he knows what he's talking about. See, years later when Paul was writing the letter to the Corinthian church, Paul reflects back on his days, all these days, kind of thinking about all the stuff I just told you in about five minutes. This is what he says. He says this in uh, 2 Corinthians 11, verses 24 through 27. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. How do you keep track of that stuff? You have like a little ledger? You know, here's my beating ledger. You know, I don't know. He just, it was so often with him, I can't, I can't believe, you know, I, I, I have no problem with that because I have no beatings or no stonings or no, you know, imprisonments. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. So, let's go back to the verses we started with in, in Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. So when Paul says, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances, I know what it is to be in need. Do you understand? 
He's not just blowing smoke, folks. He's not saying, well, I've heard about people who've been in need. You know, I know about the people in Africa or, or, or in Haiti. You know, I, I might have even been there once and seen it. No, he's not saying, he said, I have experienced it in my life. I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. And I know what it is to, be, to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. That's the context of these verses, Paul's life. Unless we understand, I mean, we can learn something from a guy. Who are the best speakers that you've ever heard? Not only people that are persuasive, but people that have lived certain things, and they tie the two together, and they, they share out of their life's experience, and that is what Paul does. Not talking about something, talking from the experience of life. And then he concludes this little part of the passage with the verse that's probably the most misquoted and misunderstood of anywhere in Scripture. I believe this is the truth. Philippians 4.13. Now this is the context it's in. Let's not take it out of context because we do all the time. He says, after I've, I've learned the secret of being content, he says, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. What's all this? Not all this stuff that we usually say about that. I mean, how many times have we, people, you know, taken this verse and used it, put it on T-shirts with a sports figure on there and go, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I can be an NBA basketball player. I can be a major league baseball player. I can do this. A CEO of a company says, I can do all things. He's a Christian through cause who gives me. That's not what it's about. It's not about pulling yourself up by your bootstraps because you're a Christian. It's not about accomplishing anything you want with God's help, anything you, your crazy mind can come up with. It is instead the testimony of those who have Christ and have found him supremely valuable, joyous, and satisfying. And in a life constantly marked by these extreme signs of the low, Paul has found the great constant security, the great centering hope, Jesus Christ himself. See, this text isn't saying, I always thought about this. You know, these things that say, people, I can, you know, somebody says, well, I can do all things through Christ gives me strength. I want to be a major league baseball player. What if you just don't have it? You know, God didn't make all of us to do that. What if the best thing you can do is pick up the water bucket and carry it to the bench? Do you think just because you quote that verse and claim that promise that God's going to turn you into that? No. It's not about that. It's learning to be content in all things. Whether you're the Major League Baseball player or you're the water boy, that you're content in that because of what? Because of you're in Christ. In Christ is enough. It's kind of like this. Paul is saying this. In this context, he's saying, I've learned to be content when I received everything I want, and I learned to be content when I got nothing I wanted. I can do either one by the power of Christ. Remember this book we've been talking about, the, the book of Philippians is called the book of joy. And joy is not 
has nothing to do with externals. Yeah, I was, I was happy when I was in Florida last week. Okay! And I could go back in a heartbeat and be very externally content. But I met this, I just thought about this. I met this guy. Uh, there's a workout room there, believe it or not. I actually worked out some. Okay? And there was this guy there. He was filthy rich. I, I can tell you because he drove a Jaguar. But, uh, <clears throat> and, and this was like one of his multiple places he owned, you know, everywhere. And I'm thinking, here he's in the middle of paradise. And what does he do? He comes in and he's grumbling and griping. He's going like, <sighs> so, and there's a ping pong table over here and there's some ping pong balls. He's going, like, some kids came in here and smashed a ping pong ball. <laughs> and I'm going like, get a life, dude. That's all you have to worry about. You're not content. It's not about, it. He, he, he's in a turmoil. All, I guarantee this guy lives in turmoil all the time. Because he doesn't recognize, he's, it has nothing to do with externals, it's internal. He has no peace. He has no joy. See, because I've learned to be content when I received everything I want. I've learned to be content with when I get nothing I want. I can do either. But it's not because of the externals, it's because of the power of Christ in me. That's what Paul's saying. So when Paul says to live as Christ, the die is gain, another one of those refrigerator verses that we've learned in Philippians he means it. He means it. If you want to kill me, he says, go ahead. That's fine. You know what's, what it is? I will be, get to be with Jesus quicker. And my death will be filled with Christ. And if you want me to live, I will press on with the mission. My life will be filled with Christ. If you want to torture me or imprison me or mock me, I will trust in God and God will come out ahead. See, through highs and lows, better or worse, richer or poorer, sickness and health, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you when Christ becomes your all. See, a gospel-shaped life fills every space in it with an unconquerable faith and an unfailing love, and it comes from God. See, if you're united with Christ through the gospel and you're, a, you're secure in Christ as well, you know John eleven twenty six 26 says this, in fact, according to Jesus, even if they kill you, you won't die. So what do you have to worry about? See, there's probably none of us who are listening to this who consistently experience the ups and downs that Paul did. Would you just agree with that? I don't think anybody here has experienced the ups and downs that Paul did. I'd like to hear your story if you have, okay? But as we consider his life, there's something profoundly helpful about seeing or looking at his life, seeing what he lived through, walked through, and seeing how God sustained him through all of it. By looking at that, it helps me to understand that my highs and lows are nothing that God can help me through all these things. See, my hope is this, and this is where we conclude this series and pray and go our separate ways. My hope is that the future, that in the future, 
When you read the book of Philippians, or the letter of the Philippians, or you read, or others, Colossians, or Corinthians, or Ephesians, or the book of Acts, you will not only see it as God's word, but as you read about the Apostle Paul, you will realize that this is a man who lived these words out. It was real for him. It wasn't theology, understanding about God. It was living in the, in the midst of God in his life. And when he says that we can be content regardless of the circumstances, he knows what he's talking about. So we need to listen. How about you? How about you? How are you doing in the area of contentment? Are you never content? No matter where you go, you go to Florida, you go to Disney World, you go to wherever, and you get there, and you're going, ah, Or you go to Illinois. <laughs> I disagree with, with that this is the greatest state in the world. The greatest state in the world is the one where it's always warm and comfortable and I'm happy, you know? <laughs> Friday I got back, it was 60 in the morning. By the afternoon it had dropped. I was not happy. Because <clears throat> I'd have been experiencing 75 and 80 degree temperatures for a week and a half and I'm going like, this is not fair. But I'm beginning to realize something, you know? It doesn't matter. Whether I have a lot or nothing, whether I'm warm or cold, as long as Christ is in the center of my life, everything's fine. I can be content. And I can have joy. It really doesn't matter about all the externals. Yeah, they're, they're kind of a mess sometimes. Okay, let's just agree to that. But that's life. And we can either let life swallow us up and make us grumpy old people. Or we can allow God to renew our joy every day. What do you choose? It's your choice. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your incredible love and your goodness. We pray that you would just allow us this morning, more than anything, to understand your love and compassion for us. And God, help us to learn from the example of the Apostle Paul, who had so many ups and downs, wild swings in his life. Uh, had a lot to do, yes, God, with his passion for you and his, and his enthusiasm. And, and the way that he spoke obviously struck a nerve with people. But God had also challenged people to take next steps with you, God. God, for many of us this morning who, who, are, who are here, We've already called you, called upon your name and asked you to become Lord and Savior of our lives. But God, we have chosen to try to hold on to too many things, which means we try to control things in life that we are not meant to control. And because of that, what happens is, is we have this, live this life of discontent, this life of, of pain and, and suffering sometimes that you never meant for us to live. God, help us to ask ourselves the question, where do we get our contentment from? Does it come from you? Or does it come from all the stuff around us? Stuff will come and go. But God, you, you never change. You love us. You desire more than anything for us to live a life of 
joy, even in the midst of struggle. Thank you, God, for your incredible love. And help us this morning, God, each one of us, to commit ourselves more fully to you this day so that every day as we start the day, we will look at you, we will wake up, and we'll open our eyes and we'll say to you, God, God, today is your day. I choose to keep my eyes on you. And as I do so, God, this day, help me to see the world as you see it. Help me to do as you would do. Help me to love as you love. God, if we do that, we'll experience life in a totally different way than we normally do. It means that that grumpy person that we work with, we'll see in a different way. Our kids and our spouse, sometimes it drives us crazy, God. It'll, we'll see them in a different way. We'll see them as you see them. And so our response and the way we live life will be so different. Thank you, God, once again for your incredible love. And we ask that you would just guide us to stay. May help us to make that commitment to you. We need to. And to choose you. And to be content in you every day. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's go and stand up together and sing one last song.